When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. The return of Halley's Comet in 1910 precipitated some strange behaviour on planet Earth. Many believed the comet would bring about the end of civilization as we know it, while others thought Earth would be completely destroyed. This episode I'm talking to historian Richard Goodrich, whose new book Comet Madness explores how Halley's close encounter made our planet's populace go a little bit crazy. Hi, my name is Richard Goodrich, and I'm the author of Comet Madness, how the 1910 return of Halley's Comet almost destroyed civilization. I am a PhD from St. Andrews University and spent nine years living in the UK, in Scotland, and in Bristol, and have spent about 20 years in the classroom teaching mostly ancient history. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not often we, we, we have... Um a historian on the podcast. We usually have um, usually have astronomers and astronauts, basically, and an astrophysicist. So it's 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 really interesting to come at um, this from from the uh, historian point of view. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's I'm worth. I mean, kind of slipping in the back door here. I'm slipping in the back door and <laughs> inserting a little history into your podcast. That's right. A bit of a bit of history of astronomy. There you go. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, worth, I think, going, going all the way back to, to, to what inspired you to write um, the book, because you, you you cover lots of different types of history. And, and as you said, you know, ancient history is your thing. This is sort of like late, late Victorian. What 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 grabbed you about, about the story and, and made you decide to pursue it? Well, I'd have to say serendipity and uh, being willing to follow things wherever they lead. So when I was teaching in the United States, one of the classes I taught was a senior thesis class, and all of our history majors would have to write a 10,000-word thesis. And one year, because this is, tends to be a rather challenging project for a lot of the students, and so one year I decided I would uh, share their pain. And so I decided I would write a 10,000-word thesis and walk through the nine assignments that I had them do on the way to that final goal. And I would just run, you know, a couple of weeks ahead, essentially, and give them something to you know, model an example for their work. And I thought, well, I could do something in ancient history. And so my primary area of expertise is the late Roman Empire. But then I thought, well, that gives me an unfair advantage because, of course, I've spent, you know, 20 years studying that area. And I'm fairly, fairly well equipped to deal with it. So I thought, well, let's do something radically different. And I went and looked around. And I got very interested in um, what happened in 1910 when Halley's Comet returned uh, to this to our neck of the solar system. And 
I kept pulling on strings and pulling on strings, and eventually a book flew out. <laughs> um, were uh, comets something that that, that had inter- interested you before? Like, had, had you ever seen a, a sort of like a, a big dazzling comet, or were you sort of in, interested in that anyway? You know, um, this is going to sound really shameful for the astronomy podcast, but not so much. Um, I do recall Halley's Comet in 1986, and my major memory of that was it was really a spectacular flop. And so everybody had built it up. Here's, here is the comet. You know, when we think of comets, Halley's Comet is usually the one that jumps to the front of our minds. And so this is the one that terrified uh, people in 1066 and 1456. And you think, oh, wow, this is, this is going to be sensational. And as it turns out, it, it kind of passed on the opposite side of the sun from the earth. And we never really got much of a view. So it was a bit of a, a flop, essentially. So I'm, I'm really optimistic for the one that's coming next year. Uh, because I'm hoping all, everybody is saying it's going to be amazing. It's going to light up the sky, and I'm really desperate to see a, a fantastic comet like that. That's right. Yeah, uh, Comet A3. I mean, comets have a sort of way of like, sort of either being amazing or, or being really disappointing, as you say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but what was this uh, comet madness of, of of 1910 that that forms the title of the book? Well, Comet Madness is really a story of kind of our ignorance about comets in 1910. So astronomers were still trying to figure out what comets were. We knew there were objects that flew through space, but there were a lot of theories and competing theories about that. So we have a bit of uncertainty from the scientific camp. And then that is coupled with the newspaper's desire to sensationalize everything and kind of turn what realistically was a minor science story into a major, potentially Earth-destroying event. So the problem with Halley's Comet in 1910 is that it made a fairly close pass through the Earth. So it came within 13 million miles between the head and, and the Earth. But... We flew through the tail of Halley's Comet, so its trajectory carried us through the tail, and there was quite a bit of concern about what might or might not happen when the Earth flew through the the tail of Halley's Comet. And this is really the basis for most of what I I like to call comet madness. It's sort of... um what you're describing there for what the, the sort of media sensation it sort of feels like not much not much has changed in the past hundred years or so you, you still get that with like astronomical events like solar flares and things so, well the worst thing that could happen is it destroys the entire earth did, did did you did you sort of see um similarities between today's sensationalist media and, and what was happening back then yes there's an absolute parallel between the two because really media hasn't changed so from 1910 we've added radio, television, the internet, as our major news sources, but still the business model's the same. So any media organization only exists to uh, put publish news that will then get enough readers or viewers to generate advertising revenue. That's not changed in more than 100 years. And so the same economic forces that drove events back then um, are still driving events today. And so you need to have stories that are exciting, uh, maybe stories that are slightly exaggerated in their importance, in order to capture your reader or viewer's attention. Um, so, what what were some of the biggest misconceptions, or, or were there any, were there any some particular outlandish misconceptions as to what would happen when 
when Comet Halley finally arrived? Yes. Basically, there were four major, um, what we call them, points of fear, if you will. <laughs> the first obvious one was that when the comet did return, it was first spotted on September 12th by a German astronomer named Max Wolf of Heidelberg University. And once they had you know, seen where the comet was and had some, some data points that they could plot the orbit, they realized it was going to be passing rather close. So again, 13 million miles. Now, that's not, you know, that's, that's a considerable amount of distance if you think of you know, the distance of the moon and the distance of Mars between those two. Nevertheless, a very respected Jesuit um, professor, uh, Charles Charapin of St. Louis University, uh, he gave an interview to the press, and I'm going to frame this with the word allegedly because I'm somewhat dubious in, a, you know, in consideration of what come, came much later of how many of these stories were simply just made up by reporters. But anyway, Father Charapin told a reporter that uh, Halley's Comet was actually going to strike the Earth, <laughs> and when it did, that would usher in the end times that Jesus had prophesied in the Gospels. So, you know, the stars falling from the heavens and the Son of Man returning, and the Earth would be destroyed. Now, you have to understand that um, Charles Charbon, he's not a crackpot. He's a highly respected astronomer in his age. And so for somebody with this stature and authority to allegedly say this, and of course in America, it gets pumped out on the Associated Press and it goes everywhere. And this is an age where all your news comes from basically newspapers. That's your only conduit of information. I mean, that's something that could be rather terrifying right out of the gate. So direct comet strike was the first major concern. <clears throat> uh, more reputable astronomers waited and said, no, that's not going to happen. We've already plotted the orbit. We know exactly where it's going to go. It is going to come close, but it's not going to hit us. So that was, that was the first concern. The second concern um, occurred in early January of 1910. Now, Halley's Comet is going to fly by the Earth on May 18th of 1910. So you're getting a several-month run-up in which newspapers can publish all kinds of wild stories and accounts. In January of 1910, suddenly in the Southern Hemisphere, a new comet appeared in the sky, and this was Comet A 1910. And so it was actually discovered by three South African miners, and they were the first ones to spot it. But it sort of snuck up on the Earth. At this time, the Southern Hemisphere was not well um, covered by observatories, so we didn't see it till it was very close and very bright. And this reignited the fear that here was Halley's Comet and the scientists had been wrong and it had swerved off course and was now bearing right down upon the Earth. Again, the astronomers could diffuse that by saying, well, no, actually, we can still see Halley's Comet in our telescopes. You can't, but we can. So it's, it's right where it should be. Don't worry about that. <laughs> However, in late January of 1910, the sun began to rise in Paris and it rose and rose, and it, it finally crested 30 feet 5 inches above its normal level. And this was the largest flood in, in Paris's history. A third of downtown Paris was completely underwater by this. And so this raised a second question. Is it possible that comets cause extreme flooding? And if that's the case, what happens when Halley's Comet, which is going to come much closer to us, than Comet A1910 did, will we have just a universal deluge? 
Now, I think one of the interesting things was Edmund Halley himself, who, of course, first discovered the periodicity of Halley's Comet, um, he had actually worked for a time on the theory that the Noah's Flood was caused by a comet. But he'd never reached a, an actual conclusion, and, and, but he had worked on that idea some. And so there was, of course, some concern that when Halley passed, Halley's Comet passed very close, this could happen, trigger a universal flood. <clears throat> so that was the second concern. The third one, and this is the one I really like a lot, was, again, we don't know at this time exactly what a comet is. So there are a lot of theories about it. Uh, what it, but what is the head of a comet? Is it rock? Is it some sort of ice? Is it something else? Is it, who knows? We don't know. And so a amateur astronomer named Edwin Nolte put out his theory, which was that the head of the comet is actually a large uh, lens, essentially, made out of gaseous vapors. And this lens focuses the light of the sun into this incredibly powerful beam of energy. And that's what the tail is. Well, I don't know if you, when you were growing up, if you ever went out to the playground at recess and played with magnifying glasses and burned things, but the idea of this magnifying glass essentially flying past the earth <laughs> and scorching the earth with this concentrated energy, this was also something to be concerned about. Now, Nolte himself didn't believe it was going to burn the earth, and he thought what would happen is just the energy would disrupt things geologically. So you would have volcanoes uh, erupting. You would have uh, earthquakes happening across the earth. You would have uh, gases in mines exploding and having you know, huge underground explosions, but not a, a literal scorching. So that also was a very big concern. <laughs> it, it's really um, interesting hearing you talking about having having read, obviously, you were able to go back and, and, and find the, the articles that you're talking about and, and actually read them. And then that's where you, you've gotten the information from. I'm just wondering, did, did you find that quite, quite refreshing? Presumably when you're studying ancient history, you don't have sources like that. So for all of a sudden you're like, well, it's only a hundred years ago. You know, we've got, we've got all this written, written, written um, resources that I can actually use here. That was really an amazing part of this experience because, as you say, the classical canon is, for the most part, closed and has been closed for many years. I mean, occasionally you find some new manuscript or a lost manuscript that we knew about but had never seen a copy of. But, but realistically, if you're studying uh, Eusebius's life of Constantine, not much has changed on that in a couple hundred years. And so you have realistically a very limited range of sources but when I started digging into all these newspaper databases and magazine databases and, and old books that were written about this period, yes, the number of sources was rather daunting. <laughs> and when you were rifling through them, did, did you find many um, reports about Halley's Comet that were just, you know, sensible and 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 conservative, just and just 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 saying Halley's Comet's going to be passing by and, and it'll be absolutely fine. Absolutely, absolutely, and this is the, this is the where the road splits, I think, because there really isn't a serious astronomer working at this time who thinks that we're going to be destroyed, <laughs> and that and that is really illustrated, I think, best in the fourth way we could die. Because remember, we're going to pass through the tail of the comet. 
Well, what happens then? We'll be surrounded by comet gases, and the Earth will be poisoned and we'll be asphyxiated, possibly. <laughs> um, in, the, in the early 1910, early, early part of the year, they discovered cyanogen gas in the comet's tail, which is a very close relative of cyanide. And so this increased the fear dramatically because now you're going to have this incredibly potent um, poison floating around us and seeping through the air. But all the serious scientists are saying, that's absolutely ridiculous. We're surrounded by this huge layer of atmosphere, which is going to be a shield and comet themselves are extremely diffuse so there's no danger of it but that really is going to drive the story and the the media has this lovely tendency of kind of pairing a very wacky theory like we're all going to die with you know uh, reassurances of more reputable um, scientists you know in opposing columns essentially <laughs> but they're throwing that out there and and people do become very terrified about that and one of the um, sort of biggest, I suppose, um, consequences of that, uh, as you explained in the book, was the the way sort of private enterprise leapt upon that with all sorts of ways of saving your, saving yourself. <laughs> now, I think private enterprise is a little harsh. Uh, <clears throat> it tended to be more, uh, I would say, con men, basically. But yes, you had people who were selling comet insurance policies. And so for a dollar a week, you could buy a, a policy that would pay out in the event that the comet destroyed the Earth. And you were killed in this cataclysm, which again, I, I never quite worked out how you were going to get paid off <laughs> if a comet actually did um, destroy the earth. But there you go. You had people who were coming up with comet gas masks uh, and they were selling those. You had, uh, there was a, a voodoo doctor in Haiti who had created a comet pill. And if you took these very expensive pills twice a day, it would protect you from cyanogen gas. And then one that I think is not necessarily, uh, well, it's maybe a dubious advertising, if you will. But bartenders in New York, as the comet neared, especially in May, uh, they began to claim that if you lined up uh, a row of you know, tumblers full of scotch and you just started drinking uh, your scotch, the scotch would actually counteract the effects of cyanogen gas. So <laughs> you wanted to get to a bar and ride out the storm, <laughs> essentially, and uh, go that way. <laughs> it's quite funny because it, it's sort of it, it sounds it, it, it's sort of really really typical of, of of the Victorians. You know, certainly um, at that time in in Britain. I mean, the Victorians are sort of famous for those, you know, like Doctor Watson's fabulous magical potion and all these all these different things they seem to have they seem to have that sort of um any any sort of ailment there was some magical green potion that you could um that, that you could drink sure, or sure. some magical hat you could wear and, and it would work and, and, and you know. <laughs> magical hat <laughs> yes Do, but um i'm sort of interested in 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 your take on that um retro retrospective look back you know, about 100 110 years ago or so, um, we often sort of look look back on on historic events and and, and sort of poke poke fun at the things that they got wrong, um, and it, it must must be even in the, in the case with ancient history, you know, sort of crazy laws that now would just be absolutely not even considered. Do, do you sort of think about um, 
what um, f- future generations might might think of, of of some of the some of our you know sort of launching satellites or, or some of the some of the things that we do in, in terms of space and space 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 exploration things like that. Well, I I would tend to think that launching satellites is kind of a different uh, class than being terrified of a comet, but I think. Yeah, I think future generations are going to look back at us with a sense of derision, especially because it seems like, especially the last 30 years or so, um, we've just been getting everything wrong. Um, just the way we get get along with one another on the planet and the, the way we're handling or not handling crises. So I don't think, and I was thinking about this this morning, I don't know that despite our amazing technological leaps forward, that human nature has changed very much. And so it doesn't feel like we've really progressed as fast as our technology is progressing, which could be a very real problem um, down the road. There was an interesting debate that took place um, in Pittsburgh in 1910, and two, two ministers were given the pro and con position and the, uh, the idea was, if the comet actually was going to strike us, and if we knew without doubt that we were going to be destroyed, how would humans um, react to that, you know, that, that event? And so one minister was given the point of view that, or he, was, he had to defend the rationality position, essentially. And so he, he said, well, yes, basically, because humans have advanced so far in our thoughts and the way we conceptualize the world and interact with each other, we would essentially all be like Socrates, facing death and calmly drinking his hemlock and then shuffling off into the next world. And so what would we see? Well, we'd see kind of, we'd all, all you know, uh, line up with our better natures, we'd all start going to church again, we would get our spiritual priorities in, in, in line, and then when the comet struck, we would all just, you know, calmly go to our deaths. The other reverend, Reverend Diefenbacher, was given the opposite position, and he took the view that irrationality would actually reign supreme. So if we knew we only had you know, a month or three months to live, we would all basically go insane. I mean, we wouldn't, you know, criminals wouldn't be locked up anymore. People would be free to do whatever they wanted. We would sort of descend into Epicurean bacchanalia, uh, everybody trying to claw as much life out of their, the waning days as possible. And realistically, he said, by the time the comet got here, most of humans would have already killed themselves, you know, just because of the conflicts that would have been sprung out in the competition for the resources in the end. And I do feel that like Reverend Diefenbacher, if we were placed in this sort of similar situation, even with our technological gifts and heightened understanding, we probably would end up not going calmly into the night. <laughs> it, it reminds me of that film that was out um, a year or two ago, um, like Name Escapes. Yes. You know the one I mean with uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that's where the comet is, comet is bearing down on the earth, right? Yeah. The, the, uh, and actually strikes. Oh, what was... Uh, yeah. No, it's called, like, don't, it's, don't it's look up, I think, or something like that. No, that's it. That, yeah. that is it. Yeah. Yes, and so the astronomer there, he just kind of gathers calmly with his family as their last meal yeah. uh, together, and then everything comes apart, which 
I don't know. I'm not as optimistic about it as that. <laughs> and w- were you able to gauge from from newspaper articles and, and other resources what what actually happened when Halley's Comet did appear in 1910 and, and everything was fine? Yeah, everybody lived. <laughs> well, actually, everybody lived except, and I shouldn't say that, that's a bit glib. Everybody lived except those people who killed themselves. So a lot of people were actually very frightened by the newspaper stories that they read, and they didn't want to go through asphyxiation um, by comet gas, and they decided the better thing to do would just be to preempt that experience and kill themselves. So several people did actually kill themselves, um, which was rather tragic outcome of all of this. It was interesting because the newspapers had really built this up into a big event. In the last week of coverage, it's front page news, you know, front page stories on every newspaper and kind of excitement growing and growing. And then essentially nothing happens. We slip through the tail and much as the scientists had said, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. Um, <clears throat> so if you're if you're a newspaper editor, it's been a tragic disappointment. And what I thought was very fascinating is the newspaper editors then turned and blamed the scientists. So they argued that the scientists had deceived everybody and gotten everybody all worked up and excited about this and it you know, made us all fear that we we're going to die. But now we knew that science is just you know, a load of hokum. It's just another con. And um, we'll never put scientists back on a high pedestal like that and hang on their every word again, essentially. I suppose, in a way, that's also an, another story, isn't it? You know, it, it's not so. So, you know, they're not just going to run with, "Oh, the, the comet, the comet was great, and everything was fine, and everyone enjoyed watching it." They ha- there has to be another, another week or so of 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 leverage out of that one story, and that's a way of doing it, isn't it? Yeah. The interesting thing about it is that the comet's tail didn't appear on the right side of the Earth. And so the comet had been visible in the early morning hours, and once the tail swept across, it should have been visible in the evening hours. And so it didn't happen immediately. And I believe the, the correct astronomical explanation is because you know there were branches in the tail, and the tail itself was curved, so it actually didn't uh, hit us at the predicted time. But the newspapers did make hay out of that as well, you know. What has happened to the tail? Has it detached from the comet? Is it floating around independently from the comet? Uh, what have the scientists gotten wrong this time? And so, so they were able to, to extract a little bit of, from that. But, but basically, the tail eventually arrived on the correct side of the Earth, and you could see the comet going away as predicted. Amazing. Looking back, what was it, what was it like writing the book? Do do, do you think you'll you'll sort of um, explore? Um, I don't know. Is is that is that classed as modern history? And um, do you think you'll explore a bit more um, history of astronomy? Has it inspired you to do so? Do you think? Yeah, writing the book was a great deal of fun. There's no. It was. It's something that I haven't seen before. So nobody has really uncovered this story. And there's that sense of, you know, this great riches that you're you're digging up and excavating for yourself, which was a tremendous amount of fun. And yes, I, I'm very open to continuing to explore that period. I think it's, you know, the early 20th century is a very interesting time anyway, because you're making this incredible technological leap forward, essentially, in just a few short decades. 
And you could look at that from, you know, flight is an obvious other example. Something happened, uh, the birth of mass media in terms of radio and movies are starting to come on the scene. Uh, it just, it's just a very rich period. So I would like to dig into it a little bit more. Fascinating. Um, well, Richard, th- thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast and for um, talking to us about the book. And good luck when it comes out. I think it's due to come out around about this time in the UK anyway, when this podcast is going to be released. Um, so yeah, it's uh, Comet, Mad- Comet Madness. Um, it's a great read. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on, coming on and, and talking about it and, and, and sharing sharing some of those, those wacky stories from that, from that, that crazy, crazy period in history. Well, thank you, Ian, for having me. I appreciate it. And it's been great to talk to you about it today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.